0: Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily, newly designed China Access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our website at SupChina.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to China's travails as it wrestles with a surging wave of COVID-19. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Today on Seneca, I am delighted to welcome a journalist whose work many of my peers and doubtless many of the listeners admire as much as I do, Dimitri Sevastopolo of the Financial Times. Dimitri is, to the best of my knowledge, the only reporter working for a major outlet whose beat is specifically the U.S.-China relationship. On that beat, uh, just in recent months, he's managed quite a number of scoops and Breaking stories. We'll talk to him about some of those, as well as a longer piece he recently published that takes a critical look at the Biden administration's China policy. Dimitri joins us from Washington, D.C. Dimitri Sevastopoulos, welcome to Seneca. Thanks, Kaiser. It's great to be with you. Yeah, it's uh, long overdue, long overdue. Okay, so I think I am first obliged to ask you how you landed this plum job. I mean, was this a beat that the FT editors had all along, and I just didn't know about it, or was it created? And you know, you were asked then to fill it, or was it something else? I mean, and and what does it say about the importance of U.S.-China relations that it has become, at least at the FT, a beat unto itself?
1: Well, you know, ironically, I've been at the FT for almost twenty years, and when right. I first started talking to them, they wanted me to come into Washington and be the Washington-based Asia correspondent. But but back then. They didn't have either the money or the bandwidth, or or frankly, maybe the interest wasn't quite there. So I went off and did other things. And uh, over the past, well, five of the last six years, I guess, or five and a half years, I covered Donald Trump. I was bureau chief during the Trump years, during his presidency. And I had done two elections. And normally after that, with the FT, you, you move somewhere else. Uh, but for personal reasons, I needed to stay in Washington. So I pitched the FT on this new job, said, why don't we create a U.S.-China correspondent position that looks at China across the whole of the U.S. government, looks at China in the Indo-Pacific region from the U.S. perspective and the perspective of the other U.S. allies and partners and other countries, and do it in a kind of a holistic way. In some ways, the way China looks at the relationship, is which is not to compartmentalize everything, but step back and look at the whole U.S.-China relationship. And I think it was it was just good timing, frankly. And I had an Asia background. I've lived in both China and uh, Japan. And so everything came together and the FT said, let's give it a shot. And so I've been doing that since January 20th last year when Marine One took off and, and Trump went on his merry way.
0: <laughs> a, an auspicious moment to begin. Although, as it turns out, the US-China relationship under the Biden administration maybe isn't all that different. And, and we'll talk about that. So I want to focus on that big piece on the Biden administration's China policy. But first, let's talk a bit about how you managed to have so many well-positioned folks just giving you scoops and leaking you shit all the time. No need to divulge trade secrets here, but come on, man. What's the secret? What's What are you doing, man?
1: Uh, I think it's just luck of the Irish. I mean, you know, uh, they say the Irish have the gift of the gab, but sometimes we're good listeners, too. I don't know. I mean, there's definitely a, a big element of luck in it. I think another part is, frankly, that because... Uh, the FT has invested in this position. It sends a signal to people all across the administration, whether they're in, you know, the Pentagon, the State Department, the White House, the intelligence agencies, or, you know, USTR, that the FT is taking the U.S.-China story incredibly seriously. Um, right. You know, we don't do some of the kind of parlor game pieces that other outlets might do. So we're, you know, we, we're treating the issue very seriously. Our readers want to know what the US is doing with China and the rest of the world, and particularly in the Indo Pacific. So I think people are, you know, they say that if you invest in something, you get your investment back with interest. I think on the China beat, that's what's happening. People are taking us seriously. You know, I'm lucky that I've worked in Washington for, I guess, about roughly 13 of the last 20 years. So I knew a lot of people when they were younger and maybe not as important. And then when they rise up in the bureaucracy here, you know, as long as people trust you, uh, they still talk to you. So, there's an element of that as well. Uh, But I am very conscious that there's always an element of luck in this. And uh, I'm probably jinxing myself (laughs) just by saying that.
0: I'm sure you're not. Don't worry about it. So one of those interesting leaks, I guess uh, you broke this, was on the Sunday just before National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan headed off to meet with Yang Jitscher in Switzerland. That was in mid-March, I believe. You broke the story that the American IC, the American intelligence community, claimed to have intel that said Putin had actually made a request of C of Beijing for military aid related to their, Then it was only what three week old war in in Ukraine. Uh, given the timing of that leak, you know, just before Jake took off uh, for for Switzerland, what, and he was like doing the Sunday talk shows as it as it actually broke. I think. What are you able to tell our listeners about the circumstances around it that maybe were either too hot or just too speculative? to make it into print. And, and, and do you have any theories about of your own about, about the motive behind the leak and the timing of the leak? You know, what Putin might have been trying to do maybe or the difficulties that it created for Beijing or anything else you might tell us? Sure. Well, the, one of the interesting backstories is
1: um, I think the administration was was planning to, to drop, if that's the right phrase, that information with another American outlet. Um, and we found out about it through different channels and maybe interrupted their, their plans or what they were trying to do. My sense is the reason they wanted this information out. um, and again, they were trying to go through a different channel was similar to the reason why they put out a lot of the intelligence about the Russian buildup around Ukraine just before the invasion, that there seems to have been a, a shift in the American intelligence community's way of doing business which has been driven by Avril Haines, who's the Director for National Intelligence, which essentially concludes that you know, in the past, America has been very reluctant, with some notable exceptions like Iraq, but very reluctant to put out intelligence about things they're seeing because they're worried about either damaging the relationships with their their sources or their spies or revealing their sources and methods. But there's been a shift. And I think It started with Ukraine. There's been some similar examples with North Korea. But in this case, I think the administration wanted to put this information out there or was happy that we were chasing it and others were chasing it and they got out there and that it would put public pressure on China not to respond positively to what Vladimir Putin was asking Xi Jinping to supply and that China might have second thoughts about doing something if this is out in the public, because it would increase scrutiny. And if they did do something, people would notice it. And eventually, they'd have to answer more questions. So I think that there's an overall shift in strategy. And what they did basically played into that. And that, You know, this idea that you put out intelligence publicly to try and warn other countries, we know what you're doing. And if you do it, you're not going to have plausible deniability
0: afterwards. This seems to show learning on the part of the IC. I mean, they seem to be Ad- adapting to a world of sort of more transparent and more ample uh, public intel, and uh, seem to be you know using the the news media to you know accomplish some of their own uh, own goals. That's that's smart. I mean, that seems to signal kind of an evolution out of the the strict Cold War mentality. Um, even though our our modern IC was really born out of the Cold War, right? I mean, maybe it's just me, but my experience in interacting with Former intelligence officers who worked on China before Beijing who was supposed to be our our big competitor are actually pretty uniformly, you know, critical of the direction of policy today. Um, that's always given me a little bit of comfort because they presumably have seen the worst of what China is doing. Um, wh- what about now? Do you feel like under under Bill Burns uh, and just under Avril Haynes, you know, the the intelligence community more broadly, are they changing their their tone on China more broadly? Uh, do you, do you get a sense that uh they're getting anything about china right or or specifically wrong i'm curious what you think the modern ic is doing to really shape the relationship that we have with china
1: uh it's an interesting question i mean i think if you look at the leadership i mean bill burns is you know widely respected um i think from both sides of the political aisle he clearly is very well respected inside the white house and the oval office uh, and has the, the ear of the president and is seen as a very solid guy with incredible experience who's has a very even keel you know avril haynes is also very interesting um you know she's really kind of risen in the system uh, quite rapidly and kind of meteoric Wise has a very interesting background she she ran a a bookshop in baltimore at one point when she was younger so she's not your typical um dni they seem to have a very good relationship um, but i think on china you know and you alluded to this earlier I think really the stance of the intelligence community in terms of what they put out publicly what they say in testimony on Capitol Hill and and what we hear privately when we when we talk to some people in that world is that the the skepticism about China is only growing it's not diminishing they may use slightly less crude or more polished language than Donald Trump did but actually the the general direction is the same which is that they view China as a growing threat They're worried about China increasingly and Taiwan. They're worried about the Chinese relationship with Russia, not just in the context of Ukraine, but more broadly uh, in the Indo-Pacific. They're incredibly worried about some of the things that China is doing in the technology area, which could make it very difficult for the U.S. in years to come. And a, a really, I think, good example is in quantum computing. And there's massive concern that if China becomes genuinely the world leader in quantum computing, it will have a big advantage when it comes to decrypting encrypted American you know, communications technology that, that spy agencies use. And if you can do that, you have a massive advantage. So I think the concern is, is widespread. It just is, it's delivered in a slightly, like I said, less crude manner than it was perhaps
0: during the Trump administration. But it's not nearly as gentle as it was maybe during the Obama administration either. A lot of these people that I'm talking to, I'm talking about... Um, we're, you know, in the directorate of national intelligence, or you know, we're actually China desk officers or Asia desk officers during the Bush and Obama years, and uh, I, I sense a real change. Uh, it is their job to worry, of course. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I, it's speaking of of technologies in which China has made significant advances. There was another major coup for you back in October of last year when you. And your Taipei-based colleague, who's another very widely admired China reporter, Catherine Hill, uh, broke the news that China had tested a hypersonic glidecraft that allegedly circled the world before descending at some absurd velocity. Uh, What I remember most clearly about that was this claim that it surprised the U.S. intelligence folks. So how do a couple of FT reporters get something like this? I mean, something that's pretty—it's highly technical, it's secret, and presumably it required either, you know, a really highly placed Chinese source— or maybe some satellite tracking gear that you guys have in London or something uh, uh, that I I, I doubt that they have it just in the Taipei Bureau or, or there in D.C., but just lying around some some super spy gear.
1: Yeah, we, we just take it out at the weekend and we play around with it. And sometimes, sometimes we get lucky, yeah. you know.
0: You got lucky. Um, oh, I think that's a hypersonic glide. Crash. Yeah. What do you think, Catherine? Yeah, you
1: another know? one. Um, I mean... Some I, I won't go into the sourcing because for obvious reasons. Um, right, right. But I think, again, it's a reflection of we are taking this story uh, very seriously. Uh, both Catherine and I, between us, have probably, I don't know, 30 years or more of, of reporting on China, the PLA. Catherine also reported on the technology industry when she was in, in Beijing years ago. So, you know, we, we focus a lot on these issues. Clearly, that story was very sensitive because the underlying information was highly classified and remains highly classified. The, the Pentagon has still only confirmed a few details of what we had in the story and hasn't said anything beyond what we wrote. But the fact that we got it shows you that there are some people in the world who believe that it was important to reveal to the public just how much progress China had made, for example, on hypersonic weapons. And just you know a, an amazing statistic... Which you know is, is public, but it's worth repeating, is that the U.S. has done roughly you know ten or eleven hypersonic tests. I think there was another one yesterday that the Air Force claimed was successful. China, last time I checked, had done two hundred and eighty, wow. and that was several months ago. So I wouldn't be surprised if they're closer to three hundred by now. So you know, there's there's one view inside national security establishment in the U.S., which is that. Revealing that kind of information is dangerous because, again, you might be revealing sources and methods, you're showing the Chinese how much you know, etc., etc. And then there's another school of thought, which is there's a tendency in Washington to build China up to be this huge giant that's indestructible or this country that all it does is copy and steal and it has no innovation. And the truth is, as you know better than I do, the truth is somewhere in between. Um, China does steal and copy an awful lot of IP and, and military weapons designs, but it also has uh, incredible innovation. Um, you look at the financial, the the fintech sector, you know, China was way ahead of America. Sure. So I think it's important to have a more nuanced um, an accurate sense of, of where the two countries are. Anyway, in that context, there were clearly people who thought it was important to get this information out publicly. So this was
0: from the USIC then? So this came from the American side
1: then? No, I'm not saying where it came from. I'm just saying that there are there are people, you know, in that world who basically think it's better to have a little bit more transparency. Right, right. Uh, in terms of that kind of, you know, to show what China's doing. You know, there, there are lots of countries who have a, a stake in this, you know, Japan, Taiwan, Australia—all of the allies. I mean, it's everyone's looking at this. And, and as someone pointed out to me, kind of in a joking way, but actually it wasn't a joke, that you know, Elon Musk and his people would have seen this uh, hypersonic weapon going around the world. I mean, you, it's it's very difficult to hide something like that. You might, you know, certain parts of the launch may not have been detected, or it's possible because of the types of radars and sensors that the US has in space, which are geared for a certain threat. It's it's I don't know this, but it's possible that for example, something might disappear off a screen for a few minutes. But it's impossible to to hide the whole thing. So there would have been an awful lot of people who knew that China had done this or had seen it and were trying to work out what it was. What was really incredible and when we wrote the first story, um, I think we had a quote where someone said that China had essentially defied the laws of physics. Which, of course, wasn't true, because if they defied the laws right. of physics, we would have had a much bigger story. Newton was wrong, or someone else was wrong. But what turned out was what the Pentagon was most surprised by was not that the hypersonic gl- glide vehicle had gone around the world, although that was, that was a first and was very impressive. It was that as the hypersonic glide vehicle, which for, for people who aren't steeped in these things, is basically like a space shuttle. It's flying at more than five times the speed of sound, or Mach 5, which is what hypersonic means. And it's maneuverable. You can, you can control it. So think of a space shuttle, but just a slightly different configuration. And it's really
0: hauling ass, yeah.
1: Yeah. As that hypersonic glide vehicle, as it was flying over the South China Sea, coming back in towards China after flying around the Earth, it fires a projectile or a missile of some kind from the hypersonic weapon. That is the unbelievable technology that the Pentagon, at least several months ago, and, and DARPA, the advanced research arm of the of the Pentagon did not understand how China had done that because the u s doesn 't know how to do that and and no one had done it before, so that was really the the highly advanced technological uh, development that China showed, and that is really what shocked people and I think again, the reason why some people were willing to take a risk and and, and point us in the direction of this story was they thought it was important to show how much progress China had made and one of the interesting things and this is a good lesson for reporters including me or you know new reporters who are kind of rookies on beats when i first got the tip about what had happened you know you go back and you read all the public congressional testimony or speeches that have been given by senior pentagon military leaders or civilian leaders in the area that you're looking at. So in my case, it was the head of the Air Force, the secretary of the Air Force, the head of strategic command, the head of Northern Command. And if you looked at all of their statements, there were actually little parts of this puzzle had been put out publicly. You know, One person had said that China had just tested a advanced hypersonic glide vehicle. Another uh, person said that China might have the ability to send um, something around the earth um, and attack the earth from space someone else said something so if you look at all those pieces actually a lot of this was out there already and these senior military leaders were clearly trying to push the envelope a little bit um but they had to do it within the bounds of you know what was what had been declassified and what they could say publicly without getting into trouble so i think there were there were clearly a lot of people um certainly in the u.s and potentially beyond the u.s who you know had a vested interest in in getting this information out there um and you know maybe we just got lucky um but I'm I'm not going to complain about that
0: well the strategic leg up that it would confer on on China you know that's obvious enough but is this is this like a new frontier in in the nuclear arms race or do hypersonics genuinely pose a, a- a, a quantum leap of a, of a threat? Are we going to suddenly start hearing about the hypersonics gap, just like we used to hear about the missile gap back in, in the 50s and 60s?
1: I, I think we are. I mean, there's, there are some people who downplay this. And so, for example, um, Secretary Lloyd Austin, the US Defense Secretary, recently got very kind of frustrated on Capitol Hill when he was asked about the gap between the US and China when it came to hypersonic weapons technology. And some people will will play it down and say Hyper, hypersonics are not as important as others say, and, and we shouldn't get too excited about what China is doing. But I think that's basically them not wanting to admit in public what's going on. So just to give you an example, a couple of months ago, I traveled to Australia with Admiral uh, John Akalina, who is the head of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, and I spent six days traveling around Australia with him. And the most interesting part of that trip was we spent two days at um, a place called Alice Springs, which is right smack in the middle of Australia. There, there's nothing there, mm-hmm. uh, although there were about 200 Cathay Pacific airplanes at the airport because they'd been resting there since COVID started. So it was like a graveyard for airplanes. But the other thing that's there is one of the most important spy satellite control centers in the world. It's called Pine Gap. Uh, there's even been a show about it made on, I can't remember if it was Netflix or, or one of the other channels. and. I sat down with Aquilino, also the head of U.S. Space Command, General Dickinson, and the deputy head of U.S. Cyber Command, uh, General Moore, and did an interview with the three of them. And one of the reasons they were there was to talk to the Australians. This is a, Pine Gap is a joint CIA Australian spy center, basically, satellite spy center. But to talk to them about what more the U.S. and its allies need to do in space. And one of the things they talked about was the need to have a different kind of constellation of sensors and different kinds of detection equipment that allow you to see hypersonic weapons as they travel around the earth. Because one of the difficulties the U.S. faces, and this is why the hypersonics question is important, is most of the U.S. missile defenses, and people will argue as to whether they actually work or not, but putting that aside, the U.S. missile defense system is essentially geared towards a a rogue nuclear missile threat coming from North Korea, coming over the Arctic, um, you know, over Alaska into the US, the West Coast, the East Coast, or wherever. Right. They, what China did with this um, combination of the the rocket and the hypersonic glide vehicle um, that they tested last July was: you can send your your missile or your hypersonic weapon, to, you know, around the Earth in different ways. So one of the things you can do is you can send it around or under the South Pole so that instead of coming over the Arctic and down into the U.S., it would come from the South Pole up into the U.S. And that's very important because, again, the U.S. constellation of of sensors and, and different pieces of equipment are basically geared towards the north. So this gives China a way to attack the U.S. from the south where the U.S. doesn't have the same kind of defenses or ability to track and detect Um, and then ultimately try and hit that it has for weapons coming in from the northern route. So that's why it's very, uh, you know, significant. Also, in the same way that you can maneuver the space shuttle, the fact that hypersonic weapons can be maneuvered means they're much harder to hit. They're actually slower than ballistic missiles. Ballistic missiles fly, you know, much higher speeds than five times the speed of sound, but they follow a, you know, a, a ballistic track, uh, which, you know, if you see where the missile takes off, you know where, to, where it's going to fly. Right. A parabola. That Hypersonic weapons are different. And so that is really why this is, is so serious. And, you know, even in the last six months, I've had several people who, who read our story who weren't involved in you know, the original story at all come to me and say, you know, it was really good that this got out public because it's a real wake up call for the U S and hopefully it will, it will shock Congress and, and the Pentagon into stepping up their game and, and trying to catch up with China.
0: So you said there's a streaming show about Pine Bluff. There's a streaming show also about the U S confronting China in space. It's great. It stars Steve Carroll and John Malkovich. It's called Space Force. I highly recommend <laughs> it. <laughs> I check it uh, out. I think we maybe take it a little bit more seriously than, than that show does. But uh, as my friend Damien was saying, it's just really funny to hear, John Malkovich saying, "The Politburo Standing Committee." It's just very funny. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. Uh, that's it's fascinating. know uh, we could we could devote a lot of time to talking about you know military hardware and stuff, but let's shift and, and talk a little bit about that recent long piece you did for the FT uh, from April. Uh, and yeah. before we get into the specifics of IPEF, the Biden team's policy on China, maybe we need kind of a mise en scène and maybe kind of a dramatis personae of of people who aren't Beltway insider types like you are. Ah, uh, since this is your beat, you're perfect to do this. Give us the lay of the land at DC and explain where different individuals or agencies or committees within the administration are, and uh, um, and how who's driving different aspects of U.S. China policy right now, and maybe give us a sense of how, say, you know, Kurt Campbell at NSC relates with with Jake, you know, who's notionally above him, or how they relate to Tony Blinken and and Daniel Crittenbrink at State, um, and how has this changed? really, from Obama through Trump to, to the Biden administration? Maybe we can get into Gina Raimondo and, and Catherine Tai, you know, sure. the, the commerce and USTR too.
1: Um, so that's a complicated question. Where should I start? Let, let's. Why don't we start with the White House? So I think in general on China policy, I think it's a very um, National Security Council-driven administration. Jake Sullivan is, is instrumental. Um, Laura Rosenberger, who's the senior director for China, you know, working very closely with Jake, um, very, very important. Um, Kurt Campbell, you know, obviously instrumental to China policy, but I think more broadly, his role is almost more of the external face of the administration, someone who is kind of plugging in and out of the of the allies and trying to create some of these groupings and mechanisms. Uh, with U.S. allies in the Indo-Pacific, such as the Quad with the U.S., Japan, Australia, and India, or AUKUS, the the deal that the U.K. and the U.S. and Australia uh, signed last year to help provide Australia with with nuclear-powered submarines, Kurt Campbell is is driving a lot of that. I think you know it's been interesting. The, the State Department is playing its kind of traditional and diplomatic role, but there hasn't been an awful lot of diplomacy between the U.S. and China. I think partly by design, that this administration came into office 16 months ago, 15, 16 months ago. And if you remember, they started out by saying, we don't want to have talks for the sake of having talks. They eventually had the summit in Alaska where Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, and Jake Sullivan met their Chinese counterparts. And it, you know, publicly, you know, was kind of quite an ugly spat that was on display for the media before they went behind closed doors. And then we had a story at the end of it where Yang Jiechi, the top Chinese foreign policy advisor, said to Tony Blinken, we look forward to welcoming you in in China for the next round. And Tony Blinken said, thank you. And then the the Chinese delegation kind of looked at each other. And, you know, Yang Jiechi speaks fantastic English, but they weren't quite clear what Blinken had meant. So they had a little powwow and they came back and they said, um, what does thank you mean? does that mean you're coming to Beijing? And, and Tony Blinken said, thank you means thank you. And they left it at that. And then later in the summer, when Wendy Sherman, the deputy secretary of state, wanted to go to China, she put in a request to, to meet Chinese officials and ended up going to Tianjin. The US side was frustrated that China didn't seem to be playing ball and China was kind of giving the US a little bit of a taste of its own medicine. So the diplomatic side of things has been, been rocky just by virtue of the way it's it's unfolded and secondly again i think the white house doesn't want to do engagement for the sake of engagement there was a famous comment that kurt campbell made i forget exactly when but four or five six months ago where he said that wang yi the foreign minister and yang Jiechi, a top foreign policy official in china weren't within 100 miles of xi jinping's inner circle and therefore talking to them was almost pointless so that didn't go down very well in beijing so yeah. that's one side of things? I think in the Pentagon, you have Eli Ratner, who is close to Kurt Campbell, very hawkish on China, widely respected, I would say. But he's, you know, he's working for a defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, who is probably one of the least public US defense secretaries in, in recent times. He's not really out there, even on the war in Ukraine, for example. And he's not really out there that much talking about China. So the Pentagon publicly, I would say is is almost it's not silent, but it's not playing the role that it has played in, in previous administrations that I've witnessed. Then you have you know the the one I'd say the one area where the administration is most divided, and, and I think it's an administration overall on China. Obviously there are some divisions, but I would say they've been relatively unified on many things for the past 15, 16 months. The one area where there seems to be huge division and no consensus as to how to move forward. Is on trade, economics, what you do with the tariffs that you know the US put on China as part of the trade war, um, whether you keep them on, take them off, how all of that plays into domestic politics, you know, whether the US government should be helping to promote American companies' access to the Chinese market or whether they should be making sure that American companies are not supplying Chinese companies with the kind of technology that might be used to help the People's Liberation Army. and and where you strike that balance. And I think on all of these questions, the administration is is very divided. There's no consensus on whether the tariffs should be lifted. Um, Some people say you should lift them. It'll help tackle inflation here. Other people say, no, don't do that. Don't give China anything unless they give us something um, that's very significant on the the trade and technology side of things again there's a big debate where american companies are saying to the administration don't take too tough a line and and hurt us because you're hurting america if you do that and within the national security establishment i think there's a, a view or a feeling that american companies are not taking they're not sufficiently taking into account the national security component of of what they do or what they sell and there's a there's a tension between those two areas as well, and then that you know that kind of leads into what you were saying a few minutes ago that you know President Biden is is going to South Korea and Japan this month, and one of the things he wants to do is unveil what they're calling the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which is essentially the administration's attempt to um, answer the criticism which has come from most countries in the Indo-Pacific, including very close allies like Japan and Australia, which is that you can put all of the the guns and ships and other kind of military assets in the region in the Indo-Pacific that you want. But if you don't match that with a strong economic policy and increase economic relations between countries in Asia, particularly Southeast Asia and the US, you're going to lose out to China because China is investing hugely in its trade relationships with all of those countries. And, you know, its trade relationship with some of the countries in ASEAN now dwarfs
0: um, the U.S. trade relationships. That's right. And ASEAN, of course, I mean, Biden just just hosted uh, uh, quite a number of heads of state from ASEAN uh, just last week, at the end of last week. And uh, Mm -hmm. I'll talk about that. A couple of things that I want to just bring up, though, in in your fantastic sort of lay of the land or your overview of that. Uh, One is this question of diplomacy, uh, not too long ago, I had Susan Thornton on the show again, and she made an impassioned case for the revival of real diplomacy. I mean, not surprisingly, among her complaints uh, was just, you know, exactly what you had described about how we're doing things. You know, maybe she is a little more in favor of, if it's not engagement for engagement's sake, it's it's certainly engagement along, you know, a larger surface area of the American-Chinese relationship. Uh, you know, that she thinks that it simply lacks any breadth right now and certainly depth. There has to be more than just one point of interface at the very top, which is what we have, these these big occasional summits, you know, at or near the top between the and Biden or Young and Sullivan or Blinken and Wang Yi. Uh is there anyone in the administration right now who you think recognizes that there is a need to bring back a sort of multi you know, multiple points of contact kind of diplomatic relationship with China?
1: I think in in The very senior positions across of the U.S. administration, uh, there are not many voices calling for that. Mm. I think you know within again within the State Department, diplomacy is their bread and butter. So there are definitely diplomats who would like to be be doing more diplomacy. Um, You know that's their career, and I think they feel like they're slightly out in the cold at the moment. I suspect just kind of anecdotally, I've heard people talk about different agencies like Health and Human Services. You know other branches of the u.s government where there's lots of stuff happening with china which doesn't make daily headlines but is probably quite important in terms of you know global health or, or lots of issues like that there there is engagement but the kind of the consensus view among the top leadership in the in the biden administration i think is that the chinese government at you know more than any point probably since mao zedong power is concentrated or really strongly concentrated in in the hands of of one man, Xi Jinping. And therefore, the kind of lower level engagements that you would have with Chinese diplomats or bureaucrats in previous years are actually less useful because unless you can change um, Xi Jinping's behavior or his view of, of how China should be acting in the world or different kinds of economic policy or foreign policy, you can have all the conversations you want with lower levels and it won't make any difference. And I think there's a kind of a frustration in you.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I personally think that's just that's that's completely getting it wrong, because by only having those top level contacts, you reinforce she's monopoly on on the entire, you know, the, the breadth of the relationship. You can actually dilute it by having more uh, more points of contact. you know, taking care of more of the day to day. It takes things off of, out of his purview. Anyway, before we plunge into the conversation about the IPEF, last week Biden made this little speech on inflation. He hinted he might be dropping some of the tariffs. What did you what did you make of that? Did you did you get a sense that we should be sort of waiting for the other shoe to fall on that it, that maybe this signals some movement in the kind of deadlock between commerce and USTR?
1: Um I don't know. I, ha- I haven't written a story on that yet because I'm not clear what the answer is. And, I, and right now, I don't know what I would say. Yeah. I think clearly there's deadlock. And I think it's going to take Biden to weigh in one way or the other to, to come to some kind of a decision. Um, the difficulty with interpreting Joe Biden's kind of quips on various things is you're not you're not always sure. And there's a bit of a, in a different way, a bit of a Trump quality to this. You're not always sure if it's really serious. Um, or it's what his administration is really thinking, or it, is it something that he discussed with his advisors that he's kind of hinting to the public, or did he just kind of throw it out there and uh, we'll move on? So, you know, he's he's made several comments about defending Taiwan, which, you know, his senior officials have had to roll back as quickly as they can. Um, so it's not clear to me with tariffs whether that was actually a strategic comment and, and a signaling something that's going to happen or not. There There is very, very strong views on both sides of this equation within the administration so until biden actually decides really which way he wants to go i don't think we're going to see any movement and while let's say hypothetically you you accept the argument that uh, reducing the tariffs will lower inflation other people will say well the democratic majority in the house is in serious jeopardy i mean most people think that democrats will lose the house they may lose their majority in the senate and so biden is also weighing up on the one hand inflation on the other hand if he if it looks like he's done something that china hawks will say was weak on china well then he's going to be hammered over the head uh with that for the next you know whatever right. it is six seven months to the midterm so clearly they're they're balancing the economics and the national security and and the politics and and the problem is they never talk about the politics of China, the domestic politics angle of China policy publicly or, and even privately they're very reluctant to do it. So it's quite hard to parse
0: where they're going on this. But we we can infer that 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 is something that's a, a gigantic consideration for them, and it's it's fairly obvious that it is. Uh, Jeff Bader, who headed China for the Obama NSC for a few years, uh, wrote a piece that was very critical of what he called you know Biden's Trump light approach. And he came on the show to talk about that, and he was lamenting this this fear that Biden seems to have of being labeled soft on China. You know, being you know attacked on his right flank. How big of a factor do you think that is? I mean, how it seems to weigh really large in in their thinking. I mean, was Bader right when he said that the GOP is going to hit you no matter what you do on China? And look, I mean, it's it's almost like that is is already baked in, right? I mean, it, there's already this assumption that he is like— on. I mean, soft on China. There's all this stuff still in the air about Hunter. And so, yeah, I, I, I wonder whether they should just sort of do what they ought to do and move on. I mean, inflation is a much bigger worry. It's 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 got to be.
1: It's interesting that, you know, some of the things Biden has done on China, Republicans will, will quietly or privately praise. Yeah, yeah. Um, but obviously, as you get closer to the midterms, and both parties are guilty of this, um, you know, you go into politics mode, and your goal is to beat the... The rival and therefore you throw out everything that you can but i think fundamentally around the country if you if you strip out the politics um you know i covered the 2016 presidential election and and was all over america talking to just average american voters and i remember talking to to one academic in eastern ohio where i'd spent a few days and he said this is about the uh the nafta uh, trade agreement the north american right. free trade agreement he said people in Washington don't realize, or many of them don't realize, that in eastern Ohio, NAFTA is more unpopular than Osama bin Laden. Um, <laughs> and he was only half joking. And, you know, I've used that line a few times, um, borrowed it from this academic. And I think with, with China, it's, it's a combination of it's very easy to blame China uh, for the hollowing out of American industry. And sometimes it is China's fault, and other times it's due automation and lots of other things. It's much more complicated. But I think that is a potent weapon that the Republicans could use if, if Biden did something on trade that they felt they, they could use to to hurt him in November. So I do think that's, you know, if you were on the political side of the House in the White House, if you were Ron Klain, the chief of staff, who clearly has to worry about this more than Kurt Campbell or, or the Asia officials, this is a very serious concern. And I think that explains why it's in the trade and economic area where the administration has, if you're being charitable, you would say deliberative. If you're being less charitable,
0: you would say that they've been incredibly slow and paralyzed. All right. Well, let's, let's move on now and, and talk a little bit about the IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. Uh, not long ago, I had Evan Feigenbaum on this show uh, talking about, well, talking about really the same issue, although this was long before the IPF was even just sort of a, a uh, in, in urge but um he was talking about how our emphasis on the security dimension of of asia policy and specifically you know our focus on on the china piece of asia security it's hampering us he had a, a really great phrase he said that by providing security and not much else while well, china has you know as you were saying just by dint of the sheer size of its economy by its ge- geographic uh heft and because you know it has as you say just been deliberately forging all these deep commercial relations building infrastructure and whatnot we we americans risk becoming the hessians of asia uh, you know these mercenaries just providing security and nothing else I, i'm sure he would have said the same thing if you had interviewed him for your piece from april but you got someone else from carnegie uh paul henley saying basically the same thing in different words so this seems to be a broadly shared perspective, and it was the thrust of your piece, yeah? So tell us, what do we know right now about this forthcoming Indo-Pacific economic framework? Are we expecting Biden to, to take the wraps off it when he goes to East Asia uh, very soon? Has he hinted more at it maybe in the ASEAN meetings in the White House last week? So the the White House is, is you know,
1: their intent is to unveil it when uh, Biden is in Tokyo. Oh, over the weekend or monday oh so soon yeah well in terms of countries they've got to sign up and and, you know nothing is official official they're still haggling with you know four or five days to go so anything could happen but essentially the kind of core u.s allies in japan australia south korea um singapore which is not a a, a defense ally but is very close to the u.s have basically said that they will join uh, new zealand as well um there are strong signs that India will also join, which would be a big deal because India was not part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, and also, you know, India negotiated for years for the, the RCEP, which is the the other big trade deal in Asia, but then pulled away at the very last minute. So India getting involved would be, I think, a significant moment. Um, the difficulty is with most of the ASEAN countries. Um, so what what we're hearing is the, The kind of key U.S. allies think that the IPEF or IPEF, you know, is better than nothing, but not great. Um, Privately, they're quite dismissive. You know, publicly, when you ask people to say something, even on background or on the record, the quotes are a little bit more friendly towards the administration. But one of the the things that one person in the region said to me was um, IPEF is like a fried egg without the yolk. It lacks all (laughs) the nutrition. Uh, which I thought was a good way to describe it. But they don't want to criticize the U.S. and Biden publicly because they feel this is the only thing on the table at the moment, and they want to try and make it a success so that then hopefully at some point down the road, the U.S. will join the
0: successor to the TPP, which is called the CPTPP. Right, right because, you know, we'll have lots of appetite for that. You know, yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> but but that's, you know, they're they're kind of hoping upon hope. Um but the ASEAN countries are, are privately saying, listen, hold on a second. This is something that the US has basically cooked up and is presenting to us and saying, we'd like you to join this. Um, but there's not a huge amount of, of of there's not a huge amount in it for us. So for example, there is pretty much nothing in the IPEF which would grant more access to the US market, which is what all these countries want. I mean, they want, exactly. in a sense, a traditional trade agreement and on the u.s side they're hampered because of the politics they're not going to do that and so they're publicly they're they're explaining ipf and they're saying it's a 21st century trade deal it's going to look at digital issues um it's going to look at other things that traditional trade deals didn't look at and i think there's an element of truth to that i mean it's important that trade deals keep up with the times but it's also a convenient way to ignore the reality which is most of these countries in asia don't think the ipef is going to make a, a huge difference it's certainly um going to s- difficult to see how it will help the us kind of compete against china um with these countries and that's why there's a lot of frustration um, essentially the, if you sign up it's it's as far as we can tell it's going to be non-binding so it's not even a binding agreement You're going to have negotiations with, you know, multiple countries on multiple tracks. There's basically four pillars to this agreement, looking at different things from fair trade to supply chain issues to uh, kind of green economy. Um, It's going to be very convoluted. Um, I think the administration is, is about to appoint one person to be the kind of the lead negotiator in the US because a lot of other countries were complaining and saying commerce has part of it. Um. US trade representative has part of it you know the NSC is kind of in charge of it there were there were too many cooks in the kitchen from the perspective yeah, yeah. of the, other countries but i think it's going to be really interesting to see how many countries biden can get to sign up in the next 4 days and whether the countries will genuinely sign up like we're going to be proper you know involved in proper negotiations uh in the different pillars or whether some countries will do a kind of a soft sign up which is to say you know, we'll sign up to kind of hold consultations on these different areas. And at some point that might lead to real negotiations. So I think that's one of the questions is how many people has Biden managed? Did he twist their arms at the ASEAN summit in Washington a few days ago and say, hey, you know, please work with me with this. It's it's not
0: ideal, but if we want to tackle China, it's, it's crucial that you're there with us. It sounds like there's no downside for signing on. But I, I wonder what they're thinking, you know, First of all, there, there, that is an awful lot of cooks to be serving up a bland egg white scramble, right? Uh, and, you know, look, there these these same countries are looking at, at what what the Biden administration is staring down, which is the midterms in November and then a 2024 race. And, and they've got to be wondering whether any of this can even be counted on in the first place, right? Um, they're oh, th- c- yeah. contemplating American politics too, yeah?
1: Oh, totally. I mean, that, that's one of the things you hear all the time is, you know, TPP was a much more structure, structured binding agreement. Okay, it hadn't been ratified by the Senate. But, you know, Trump pulled out of that on, if my memory serves me correct, I think it was day one or day, day one, two yeah, in, yeah, in the yeah. first week, right? So the question is, in 2024, you know, how do you know that whoever the next president is, uh, even if it's a, a different Democrat, is actually going to stand by this? I mean, remember, back in 2015, um, when the TPP was concluded, you know Hillary Clinton had been a huge fan. Uh, Kurt Campbell, you know, was definitely a big fan, and he was working with Hillary Clinton. And Clinton, a month after the deal was negotiated, concluded, basically, came out and said, mm, "I have reservations about TPP. I can't support it." Um, so, you know, it's it's not just Trump who is moving away from, who you know moved away from these big trade deals, the kind of the, the zeitgeist in the country is against them. Even though when you look at polling, it shows that a majority of Americans believe that free trade is a good thing. But when it boils down to in key swing districts or states, the politics then shifts very dramatically in, in a way that makes them very difficult. So, you know, I, th- I think trade and economics is going to be the hardest component of US policy on Asia. And, and you know, to go back to the, the quote from Paul handy which was basically the U.S. has to be careful that its policy in Asia is not just
0: all guns and no butter. That's right. That's right. So I wonder, even if they were able to offer meaningful market access, is it your sense that if he had you know, commitments to significantly lower barriers for, for countries that signed on, that anyone would be motivated to turn away from China and towards the U.S.? I mean, None of these countries like this binary choice, right? Um, none of the, the countries mm-hmm. of, of Asia, I mean, with a very, very few exceptions. You know, the new South Korean uh, administration, uh, which is very conservative, probably will, and, and of course Japan. But outside of that, I mean, what countries could be enticed by the mere dangling of, of market access? By, by the way, which in IPEF's case would be in an executive order that could easily be re- reversed in the, a, a, a new administration Who's going to be enticed to to go all in with the u s on on that i don't I don't think any country you know any of the
1: countries who are caught in the middle are all of a sudden going to wake up and say, "Hey, I'm with America now they've you know I can sell my palm oil into whatever uh, right. therefore I'm all in with you so I don't think it's about that. I think it's about making sure that the the balance doesn't tilt so significantly towards China that the u.s over time has no leverage or or much much less leverage with some of these countries and so it's a question of maintaining a certain amount of leverage as opposed to um feeling that you're going to have domination over the country because clearly you know to the extent that that ever existed that's gone now you know relative u.s relative power to china or or the gap that the u.s had is is shrinking and is going to continue to shrink relatively over time so it's 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 about the U.S. maintaining a stake in the Pacific and showing countries there that it is involved. And again, that it's not just aircraft carriers sailing, you know, around the South China Sea or military exercises with the Japanese and the the Australians, that there's a wider kind of engagement. But the difficulty is, and if you think back a few days ago to when Biden held the ASEAN Summit, they unveiled basically $150 million of various initiatives um, to do things with Southeast Asia. And when I first wrote the story, I mean, several others have the same story. There were people saying, are you sure it's million? Is it not billion? Um, and people were joking. And One person said, hey, Elon Musk spends more than that before breakfast every day. Uh, spread 150 million across 10 countries in ASEAN. And that's basically chicken feed. Now, right. I, I know uh, that the White House was very unhappy with lots of the things that were being said online. And I can understand that. But the reality is that China is, is investing a huge amount of money. The U.S. will often come back and say that U.S. foreign direct investment in in many countries in Asia and in ASEAN is still ahead of China. And that may be true, but China is catching up incredibly quickly. And and everybody, you know, who's watched China, dealt with China knows that the volume of what China does is very, very impressive. But the speed is even more impressive. And I think the U.S. can't just look at what's happening right now. They have to look 10 years down the road and say, where is China going to be in Southeast Asia in 10 years And is the U.S. going to be able to compete? And, you know, recently there was a story which got a lot of attention in in China watching circles. But I I think in the broader media in in Washington, certainly it didn't, which is the Solomon Islands, you know, Pacific Island nation northeast of Australia signed a security deal with China. And before you know it, you've got the two top spy chiefs from Australia flying down to the Solomons. Kurt Campbell and Dan Crittenbrink, the top State Department Asia official, went to the Solomons with the deputy commander from Indo-Pacific Command, all of a sudden you have a full court press from the U.S. saying, hey, uh, we want to work with you too. But the problem is a lot of countries in the region feel that the U.S., when it comes to the non-military stuff, is always behind the curve and it takes some kind of a shock to the system for the U.S. to react and try and catch up. But meanwhile, China's not slowing down. So This is the big question for the U.S. is can they remain engaged in Asia in an economic way, in other ways, diplomatically, uh, in countries where they don't have strong alliances in a way that they're going to, you know, maintain leverage over time? Or is China going to kind of steamroll them and, you know, how do they deal with that? And I think it's it's an open question still.
0: Yeah. So let's shift and talk a little bit about the military stuff, about the guns and leave the butter for now. Uh, with the revival of the Quad and this new AUKUS security pact, uh, do you think that the U.S. military and defense establishment has, like, a, a, a real cogent framework for the modern U.S.-China relationship? Are, are they looking at it still through the old Cold War uh, mindset, as China often alleges, uh, you know, that China is America's new Soviet Union? I feel like the Quad and AUKUS, they, they feel there's a sort of a, an ad hoc quality to them, NATO- of the east is how the you know the, the China describes it and I, I wonder how the ukraine war affects china's thinking on this as well so to give us a lay of the, the security landscape and then i will treat everyone to my my uh limerick about aukus actually i'll do that right now i wrote a limerick about aukus anglo-saxons conspire to us," said macron as he heard about aukus so he recalled his ambo and tried to play rambo but looked a bit more like Dukakis.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that. My mother grew up in Limerick in Ireland, so I'm a big fan of Limericks. Oh, Um, oh,
0: fantastic. All right. (laughs) It scans too. It works. Uh, (laughs) Uh,
1: That was so good I've forgotten the question.
0: Oh, no, no, we were just talking about sort of the security arrangement. So, you know, I mean, is yeah. is this just sort of a, a new uh, NATO for the East, as China alleges? Is this, you know, a restoration of Cold War mentality thinking uh, Quad mm-hmm. in August and all this stuff? Is this containment to what's going on here? I mean, how should we mm-hmm. understand uh, American security arrangements in East Asia?
1: Well, so I think an interesting way to think about it is to think back, you know, roughly 10 years or so. And I remember I covered the Pentagon and intelligence agencies during most of the Bush administration and the start of the Obama administration. And I remember the time you had senior military officers in the U.S., um, including Mike Mullen, uh, who became the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Navy Admiral. And I remember some of the senior brass saying, you know, yes, we're concerned about China. Yes, we want more transparency, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, when people criticize China and say, why is it developing an aircraft carrier or why is it developing such and such? his answer was at the time listen china is an emerging power it's on its way to being a superpower it would be strange if a superpower didn't want to have these things a blue water navy and and all of these other capabilities that the us has um now that wasn't the majority view but there was definitely a, a view along those lines among some people i think what's shifted is um two things One is the way China itself has changed its behavior and some of the things it's done domestically. So for example, the repression or persecution of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, the crackdown on whatever amount of democracy there was in Hong Kong originally, it's certainly less and less now. You know, this week we had the imprisonment of Cardinal Zen. Then you have more recently economic coercion towards Australia, towards Taiwan, uh, towards Lithuania. Uh, and other countries. And I think so. it's the combination of uh, China under Xi Jinping is becoming much more assertive and throwing its weight around in in a way that the U.S., A, is not used to, and B, doesn't like because it's antithetical to U.S. Uh, American values and freedom, freedom of speech, et cetera, et cetera. The other thing is that the Chinese military has just grown so rapidly. I, I remember when I moved to Hong Kong in 2009 to be the FT's Asian news editor, The Chinese coast guard was smaller than the American coast guard the Chinese navy was smaller than the American navy i mean today the Chinese navy is way bigger than the American navy the coast guard is bigger they've caught up in in, you know they're catching up in many areas in terms of weapon systems they've they've surpassed the us and others like hypersonics so i think there's kind of a, a shock to the system in the us and the way i like to think of it which is quite simplistic but i think it's i think it's a good lens is if you imagine the world as a big schoolyard, you know, one corner you have the U.S., which is this big kid, and it's got lots of friends around it. Some of them are genuine friends, uh, you know, Japanese, the U.K., you know, some Europeans, the Australians. Um, some of them are friends because they've been bullied a little bit over the years, and you know, I, I won't say any names. Um, and then others are just there because they want protection uh, and they just want to hang out with a big kid who can protect them you know, in the other end of the the other side of the schoolyard, you know, for a time you had the Soviet Union, but the Soviet Union, although it had more nuclear weapons than the US, and in that sense was very powerful, it wasn't integrated into the global economy. It wasn't an economic powerhouse by any stretch of the imagination, the way that China is. Americans weren't buying products that were made in, you know, in Moscow or St. Petersburg, for the most part. And and now
0: that that kid's fallen off the the jungle gym and broken his arm. is.
1: And that kid, you know, has come back for a little while and, and it's in a different corner of the playground right now. We can get back to that in a second. But in the other end of the playground, you have this other big kid that's getting big and bigger very quickly. It doesn't have as many natural friends as the U.S. for sure, but it's throwing a lot of money around. So, you know, the ASEAN countries are a good example. China's investing a lot. It's investing a lot in Africa. Um, so it's winning friends is maybe the wrong word, but it's it's winning uh, you know partners of some sort, and it's not willing to be pushed around by the U.S. the way that it felt like it was pushed around in the past. I mean, China is now a confident actor on the world stage. There are some places where that may not be true, but it, you know, compared to ten years ago, there's a huge shift in Chinese confidence. And I think one of the biggest things that's happening in America is the just the broader body, body politic whether it's Congress, the administration, experts. You know, people grew up in America, they're used to being told that, you know, your local police force is the best in the world, your military is the best in the world, your democracy is the best in the world. And for the first time, you've got this other huge kid that's challenging a lot of these things. American democracy is under threat. I mean, look at January 6th. It's it's difficult for American diplomats to sell American democracy because of some of the things that have happened. The Chinese military is getting bigger you know, the US has got lots of, it's still a very resilient and strong society. I'm not suggesting that the US is in decline, but the relative strength is not there. And I think psychologically in Washington in particular, Americans are struggling to get their head around the fact that China is going to be a big kid in the playground for a very long time. It's not about to collapse. It's going to be a major player that you can't ignore unless you have two parallel universes where half the world signs up to the US and the other half signs up to China. I don't see that happening. I think with global supply chains, it's just not feasible. Right. And most companies don't want to go that far. So I think that there's a psychological issue. And, and until America really understands how it's going to compete with China, I think we're in for a long
0: kind of rocky road. So the new kid on the playground, who's you know growing really fast, he's got this growth spurt going on. He's got a list of grievances. He's got a lot of a list of criticisms about how the big kid has been running things. Are there Chinese criticisms of American policy that the U.S. would actually be wise to open its ears to and to just simply be more receptive to? What would you say, if anything, is on that list of grievances that we maybe ought to, you know, to take, take under advisement?
1: Well, I mean, there's, there's some areas where it's interesting, and it's difficult to answer because you, you, know, you can't separate Xi Jinping from China. If you could, maybe you'd have two different answers. Sure. You know, there there was obviously an effort for a long time to try and bring China more into the global economic system, not so much in terms of just trade, where clearly it's already a huge, huge player, but in terms of, you know, obviously the WTO and other rules-based uh, organizations or institutions, there was a push for a while, which is still in the background, to give China a bigger voice at some of the international institutions like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. And for a while, there was reasonable support for that in the U.S. because it was it was viewed as, as Robert Zellick famously said, making China into a responsible stakeholder. And, you know, at that time, China's criticisms were that the post-World War II order has been created by the U.S. and its friends. Obviously, the rules are more friendly to the U.S. and to U.S. values. We are this new big kid. Uh, we have slightly different values we don't want to have to plug into a world that was made by all of these other people. We want to have a stake. And, you know, all other things being equal, I think that's that's a fair criticism. And you could understand why China would want to do that. And you can understand why some people in the US would think it's a good idea and why others might not want to do that because of what China does at home and, and it's, you know, the lack of democracy and everything else. The difficulty is, I think, that China is also shooting itself in the foot and that at the same time, that the U.S. was becoming a little bit more hawkish or that the general view on China across the board was shifting in a more hawkish direction. You know, Xi Jinping started to become much more aggressive around the world and assertive, which meant that any voices in America to try and listen to Chinese concerns, I think, either disappeared or they were muted. It's been very striking to me that one of the things in my job that I've noticed over the past, you know, what, 16 months, I guess, is if I quote people who are seen as being insufficiently hawkish, they, they might still be hawkish, but they're not, they're not hawkish enough for some others. Uh, I will get texts from people telling me, why did I quote so-and-so? And I get a little bit in the other direction too. If I quote someone who seemed to be too hawkish or too close to Trump, I'll get um, you know less hawkish people saying, why did you quote these people? And I think there's a problem that Washington has right now, is it's quite difficult to have an open discussion about China. There's an awful lot of self censorship going on, I think, which I don't think is healthy for American democracy. And I don't think it's healthy for an American government that needs to craft smart policies in terms of how they deal with China. So, you know, that's all to say that I think, you know, China probably does have some legitimate criticisms. But right now, I don't think there's any ear in America to listen to those, uh, certainly in Washington. And uh, whenever a an, an ear pops out, Xi Jinping does something which makes that ear uh, pop back in very quickly.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's his own worst enemy in so many ways. Uh, I really appreciate that. Uh, one last question for you. You know, you've been doing this for 16 months, but you've been really covering the beat for much longer. Just from your experience as a journalist, do your impressions of the leaders you talk to, of the career bureaucrats that you talk to, the politicians all the people who are shaping our China policy that you've interacted with, do they make you more optimistic or more pessimistic about the future of U.S.-China relations? Combining their competence, their character, their temperament, do you feel this bodes well? You know, I'm um,
1: I'm an opt- I'm, a, I'm a big optimist by nature. You know, often when you grow up in a small country like Ireland, you have to be an optimist. Uh, you know, to deal with the rest of the world. But I feel pretty pessimistic. I, I see very few signs in the short term that US-China relations will improve. And I, th- I think really there's two hurdles. Um, one is that as long as China is continuing to do, again, persecuting the Uyghurs, cracking down on democracy in Hong Kong, economic coercion, and the elephant in the room, it stands towards Taiwan and, and what may or may not happen uh, militarily there. Uh, Until all of that has kind of disappeared, I don't see a window for improvement in relations with the US. And then on the flip side, I just think, as I said a few minutes ago, I don't think the US is psychologically ready to engage with China in, in a way that will create some kind of a, you know, it's never going to be an alliance, but some kind of a working partnership where the two countries can work on serious issues that impact the the planet. You know, right now there's not an awful lot of that. And in the short term, I don't see much optimism either. You know, in terms of the people, you know, there's an awful lot of smart people on China and Washington. I mean, I've no idea how many China experts there are in the government if you tally up all the different agencies and kind of private and public and secret and non-secret. But there's also an awful lot of people. Who feel like they need to be an expert on China now and, and speak out on China, who have zero or close to zero knowledge about China, about the Indo-Pacific, but it doesn't stop them from from bullshitting. <laughs> Probably always an element of that. I mean, it's you know, it's a, it's a democracy and it's a it's a free country and people are free to voice their opinions. But I do think sometimes the the experts get drowned out by the very loud voices
0: who. Uh, don't really have a lot of experience or knowledge in the, in the area. Dimitri Sevastopoulos, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me here on Seneca. Let's move on to recommendations. Uh, but first, a quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. And if you want to support the work that we do with Seneca and the other shows in the Seneca network, the very best thing you can do is to subscribe to SubChina's excellent China Access newsletter. If you listen to this show, you are obviously interested in China. Read our newsletter because it is just the easiest way there is to keep up. All right, let's move on to recommendations. Dimitri, you got like a TV show or a book or an article or something that you want to share with our, our listeners. So, if you'll
1: indulge me, I've got two and one of them is not very orthodox. So the first one oh, fantastic. is Fantastic. I like um,
0: unorthodox. <laughs>
1: Uh, the first one is, is a book that I I read recently by Michael Green, the Japan and Asia expert at uh, CSIS, the think tank in Washington, and it's called "Line of Advantage: Japan's Grand Strategy in the Era of Former Prime Minister Abe Shinzo." Yeah, I've been looking at that book. Yeah, it, it's interesting because it it shows you how Japan has shifted under Abe, and and you know now he's had two successors, and how it's become much more hawkish on China how it's become much more public in talking about the dangers to Taiwan and what that would mean for Japan. And to me, you know, I lived in Japan for most of the 90s and, and got involved in Japan before I got involved in China. So I've been involved with the country for for 30 years and I'm always going back and forth. One of the most astounding things to me in a country where things change generally slowly is how quickly the both the politicians and probably more importantly the Japanese bureaucracy Has shifted on China in the last few years uh, to the point where, you know, prime ministers and defense ministers now openly talk about how the threat to Taiwan is a threat to Japan and it's important to push back against China. And Mike's book basically shows how Abe gently pulled people along, you know, helped by public opinion, which was being shaped by what China was doing. Again. um, (laughs) And how he's laid the foundations for something that will. He argues will outlast uh, Abe and is already outlasting Abe, and I, I think you're seeing that now in the way that the Japanese government is, is dealing with the Biden administration. That there's no sign that they're going to pull back on some of these things. And it's interesting you hear Japanese politicians now talking more about Taiwan, I would say, than North Korea, which certainly four or five years ago was, was not the case. So it's it's a it's a relatively short book. Um, it has an index for people who like to do the Washington read and see if they're quoted. Um, but if you take your time, it's, it's really interesting. I I'd highly recommend that. My second recommendation is that, you know, you have everyone on talking about books and Evan Feigenbaum talked about a, a recipe book. I think it was a Ukrainian recipe book. Um, yeah. The one thing you need when you're reading and eating is a drink. So during the pandemic, I started uh, drinking different kinds of gin. Ah. So I'm going to recommend uh, an Irish gin. Oh. Um, and there's been a, a real revival in craft gin distilleries in Ireland in the last few years. And one of my favorites is called Irish Gunpowder hmm. and it's from County Leitrim. Uh, highly recommend that. And then you know, given that the other half of my family is actually Japanese, I'm also going to recommend Roku, R-O-K-U, which is made by Suntory, which makes a phenomenal range of, of new Japanese whiskies. But their Roku gin is also excellent. So if you're sitting back reading one of these books that your uh, your podcast
0: uh, guests have recommended, try, um, try a glass of Irish gin to go with it. Those, these are great recommendations. Thank you. Uh, I will keep my eye out for Irish gunpowder. You know, I'm not a big gin guy. I, recently, my thing has been rye. I've discovered how great just neat rye tastes. I had no idea. It's just infinitely preferable to me than bourbon. But uh, yeah, uh, so I've been trying all yeah. sorts of different sort of little ryes from little distilleries. Really enjoyed. Well, it.
1: You might be you might be jealous, Kaiser, because one of the st- when I was bureau chief, I often asked one of my colleagues to go down to Kentucky and do a story mm, on yes, the tariffs the and they were impacting you know the the, the bourbon makers, et cetera. And for various reasons, his colleague never did it. So one day I said, executive privilege as bureau chief, I'm going to go down. And I did a tour of the wild Turkey distillery. Um, my dad had given me wild Turkey when I was 13 years old and I hated it, but I thought I'm a bit older now and did a great tour of the, of the distillery and, um, interviewed a couple of, uh, bikers who'd come up on Harley Davidson's from Alabama. And there were tariffs on on the Harleys as well. So, you know. Had a couple of drinks and got a great story. And so, uh, you know, life was happy.
0: <laughs> that's great. I love it. All right. I am going to uh, recommend a book that I just blurbed. Uh, it's a a forthcoming nonfiction book that's co written by the sci fi writer, uh, the founder of BoingBoing.net, Corey Doctorow, who I, I just have known for, for many years. And he's just one of the most I'd say he's just exciting people I've, I've ever really, you know, had the pleasure of chatting with. He's just so full of good ideas. He's so articulate about them too. And uh, he co-wrote this with this trademark lawyer from Australia named Rebecca Gilbin. Uh, the book won't be out for another couple of months, but it's just great. It's called Choke Point Capitalism. Uh, and it's about just how these monopolies and, and monopsonies are basically just ruining culture in America and much of the rest of the world today. So, you know, obviously the culprits are, you know, Amazon and, and Ticketmaster and Spotify and the big three uh, record labels, Audible and, I gotta confess, I I use Audible just really uh, I'm terribly addicted. I have like that highest level of whatever on, on there, uh, uh, all the streaming services, the rest of it. You know. Anyway, let me let me just read you the blurb that I wrote because it's pretty short, and I think this this gets it right. I gave I just turned it into Corey yesterday. I said, if you're halfway through this book and aren't boiling mad over the way contemporary capitalism has deformed and crippled culture, get your head checked. Choke point capitalism is a why we fight for a long-overdue uprising. Rebecca Gilbin and Cory Doctorow lay out their case in plain and powerful prose, offering a grand tour of the blighted cultural landscape and how our arts and artists have been chickenized, choked, and cheated. It's more than just a call to arms. It also provides a plan of battle with inspired strategy and actual tactics, ways that we can all channel that anger and make real change. Anyway, it's a great book. I, I, I it, I'm... I was boiling mad, and and I was like, "Oh my god, I got I got to I got to change my the whole, whole way I live now." But, um, anyway, a great book. I uh, and I look forward to seeing it published. Hopefully, I won't have to even check the index. Like, uh, do the Post. <laughs> I'll, I'll just turn it over and see my name there. <laughs> Dimitri, thank you once again, and uh, I'll definitely be asking you to come back on again before too long because there's just a ton more to discuss. Lots of of symmetry in the future, and uh, we'll we'll watch your take on all that. I
1: appreciate it. And I appreciate you taking a risk on having an Irishman talk about China to an American audience. So
0: thank you. <laughs> right. Thank you. The Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at com. Or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, this, this really does help people discover the show, so they said. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at @subchina_news, and be sure to check out the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. Take care. Hey, hey.